Father, help us now to stand on your word. Um, help me to be clear-minded um, as I seek to explain it and help all of us uh, to be soft-hearted. Uh, apply your word into our lives through your spirit, please. Convict us of the challenges, but also the wonderful comfort of this passage. Amen. So, how many kilometres will the weather be tomorrow? What colour is the altitude of Bathurst? How many litres of electricity does a toaster use? These are silly questions, aren't they? They're silly because the measuring doesn't match the thing being measured. You don't measure electricity in litres. makes no sense to ask then how many litres a toaster would... It's silly measuring. In this morning's passage, Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that they, are so, that they also are being involved in silly measuring when they keep comparing each other using the wrong measure. Because ever since chapter 1, this has been the big problem that Paul has been tackling in the church. This comparing and arguing amongst themselves about who's best. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. All this bickering that's happening. It's awful. It's, been, it's tearing their church apart. And so for three chapters now, Paul's been telling them how foolish it is. It shows that they don't understand how they've been saved in the first place because it's God and not human wisdom that saves us. Plus, it, doesn't, it shows they don't understand how precious they are as a church, that they would be tearing themselves apart like this. However, such is the seriousness of disunity in God's church that Paul has still not finished on this. In the next chapter, he's actually going to change topic. We'll get onto a whole new problem altogether. But here in chapter 1, there's still one last thing about their arguing that he wants to straighten out. He wants them to know that they have been comparing each other using the wrong measure. And that judging and measuring each other based on human wisdom and human cleverness and human success, that's like measuring electricity with litres. It's silly. God's not primarily interested in those things. What God is most interested in is gospel faithfulness. Gospel faithfulness. And if they could just get that, their silly bickering would disappear. And if we can see it this morning ourselves, I think there's some lovely encouragement here. Let's see how by starting with gospel faithfulness described. Because that is how Paul begins the section. Verse 1. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, Paul is beginning to wrap up this whole section on disunity in the church. And so he is now reminding them of things that he's already said. Like back in chapter 2, he described the gospel there as a hidden mystery. Hopefully you remember that. Hidden in the sense that left to our own devices, we just don't value the things to do with Jesus. It takes God's own spirit to reveal to us the worth of Jesus through the message of the gospel. A message which Paul says there in verse 1 has been entrusted to him as a servant of Christ. Again, it's reminding us of things he's already said, like this time last week in chapter 3, that people like he and Apollos and all the others who they're arguing over, they're only servants 
It's God's church itself that's of greater importance. In fact, this week, Paul is really doubling down on that idea because the word he uses for servant there in verse 1, it's actually a different word to the one he used last week. This week's word is much more graphic. Last week in chapter 3, the word servant conjured up images of a table waiter, you might remember. Here in chapter 4, the word servant used, the word for servant that's used, it conjures up images of the bottom rower of those big boats that the Romans used to have. There's an artist's impression of one. You've probably seen them in the movies. How the Romans had these boats with rows and rows of oarsmen along each side of the boat to push it through the water. And the bigger boats had two levels, sometimes up to three levels of oarsmen. And so you can imagine that the bottom level, that was the worst place to be. It was the hottest, it was the most cramped, it was the least ventilated. Food and sweat and who knows what else from the rowers above you would just fall down on you. It was a disgusting place to be. And Paul says that's how he sees himself in Apollos and all these other people that the Corinthians are arguing about. And it's all leading to his big point in verse 2. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We're only two verses in, but really this is the summary sentence for the whole chapter. This is the new key thought that Paul is introducing into this whole lengthy discussion about the arguing and disunity within the church. That as a servant of Jesus entrusted with a message about Jesus, what is expected of Paul is faithfulness, trustworthiness, which makes total sense given what he's already said. I mean, if the message of the cross is what God uses to save people, which is what chapter 1 was all about, if that's how he saves people, through the message of the cross, it's crucial that that message be reliably and faithfully passed on. And the big thing to notice about that is that faithfulness is different to results. Trustworthiness is different to outward success. Verse 2 does not say that what was required of Paul was that he convert lots of people. It does not say that what was required of Paul was that he plant big, impressive churches. What it does not say is that what was required of Paul was to be really clever and entertaining in the way he preaches. What was required of Paul was to be faithful. What was required of Paul was to just keep rowing, no matter how much rubbish falls on you. And so as to make sure that the Corinthians don't miss the point, Paul now spends the rest of the chapter spelling out two important applications of this. The first being that the Corinthians need to learn to not go beyond what is written. And by that phrase, Paul means that they should only be judging each other on what God says and not go beyond what God says. They need to submit to God as the judge and not go beyond that. Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what is hidden in darkness 
and will expose the motives of the heart. Paul is basically saying there that in the end, it's God's opinion of him that matters most. It's the Lord who judges me, verse 4. Now, it would seem that from other things that he goes on to say in the letter, that at least some of the Corinthians, they think Paul's a bit of a dud. Ooh, he writes big in letters, unimpressive in person. Paul is saying here, who cares what you think of me? Who cares what I think of me? It's faithfulness to the gospel that matters most and therefore it's God's opinion that matters most. He will expose the motives of the heart, he says in verse 5. Because that's the thing about faithfulness, deep, authentic faithfulness to the gospel. That can be hard to spot compared to more outward things. For example, me just speaking to you at this very moment, in this talk, Am I being motivated by true faithfulness to the, to the gospel and God's word? Or could I be just motivated by wanting to impress you? It's really hard to get into my head to see that. It's hard enough for me to battle those mixed motives within me. And so Paul says in verse 5, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. Leave it to God to do the judging. Mind you, um, it's important not to overhear that because when Paul says in verse 5, therefore judge nothing, that is not an absolute statement. Okay, We need to remember that this is written into the context of the Corinthians arguing and judging each other based on the wrong criteria. In the next chapter, when Paul changes topic to a different problem, in that case, he will actually criticise the Corinthians for not passing judgement when they should have. So it's not simply the passing of judgement that's the issue here. It's the passing of judgement by taking things beyond what God says. Paul makes that clear in verse 6. Brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. See, the trap that the Corinthians have fallen into, and it's a very easy trap to fall into, is that we start judging others based on our personal preferences rather than actually what God says is important. And so in the case of all these people who the Corinthians are arguing over, what God says is important. It's not how gifted they are with words. It's not how clever they are. It's not how outgoing and charismatically charming they might be, all of which may, might be too bad. But, it, but in the end, that's not what God requires of his servants. Remember our summary sentence? What God requires of his servants is faithfulness. And it's all leading into a second application that Paul now gives to the Corinthians, quite an astonishing one really, as he urges the church to imitate him by having a lifestyle of gospel faithfulness irrespective of what it might bring you. Verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. Now, if you read the account of 
when Paul started the church at Corinth, you will discover in Acts chapter 18 that this was indeed a church with some pretty high-profile people in it. It seems as if this may indeed have been a church with lots of respected, clever people from the community coming along. And here, Paul is deliberately playing this up and exaggerating it so as to make the point that they may be an impressive church in the eyes of the world. They may well be a church to be seen at, but I put them in stark contrast to Paul, who is often a person not to be seen with. For it seems to me, verse 9, that God has made us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. It's actually quite a scathing section. They are so successful in the eyes of the world, or at least they want to be so successful in the eyes of the world. Paul, however, well, in verse 13, he even describes himself as becoming the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, is how the NIV puts it. The refuse of all things is how the ESV puts it. Both of which are very polite translations. And yet, remarkably, he goes on to say in verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians of Christ, in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. It's very helpful, those verses, actually, to understand the tone of this. Because like for four chapters now, Paul's been rebuking them, calling them to account. He's not enjoying this. This is their spiritual dad, lovingly wanting them to be the best that they can be for Jesus. As he goes on to say at the end of the chapter, the last, the last thing he wants is to have to pay a personal visit and to rebuke them in person. And into that context, Paul says an amazing thing. As a homeless, poverty-stricken, persecuted bloke who keeps getting thrown out of towns as well as in and out of prison, a bloke who the world keeps heaping refuse on, speaks to a socially respectable church with high-profile people in it, and he says, be like me. Imitate me. Given how he's just described himself, why on earth would they? Well, it's because... Paul's humble life circumstances testify to his gospel faithfulness. And that even though in the eyes of the world, Paul is like the scum mark around the bath when the water is let out, to God, that scum mark is the mark of success. Because the hardships Paul has been gone through, has gone through, are because of his faithfulness to the gospel at telling people about Jesus. It's because he's preached the gospel without fear or favour. That's why he keeps getting beaten up. That's why he's in prison. That's why he's made fun of. That's why he's lied about. He's lost friends. He has little, if any, money. We often glamorise the Apostle Paul. I reckon if he was around nowadays, 
he would not be getting invites to the trendy big Christian conventions. He admits he's not good with words. He admits he's not a flashy speaker. Yet from God's perspective, Paul's hardships and his lowly status in life, they are the true marks of success because they testify to his gospel faithfulness. And by urging the Corinthians to imitate him, he is calling on them to be faithful servants of the gospel as well, irrespective of what it brings them. Do not as a first priority seek popularity or showiness. Do not as a first priority seek big crowds and prestige and respectability. Do not as a first preference seek big budgets and flashy graphics and trending social media. Do not seek all the things that this world associates normally with success. Imitate me, Paul says. Just keep rowing, no matter what falls on you. And again, it's all to do with the divisiveness that is wrecking the church. They are judging and measuring and arguing about who's best. And it's all based on the wrong measuring. Because comparing each other based on worldly measures of success, that's like measuring the weather in kilometres. It's silly. Simple gospel faithfulness. That's what matters. And that shift in thinking which Paul wants the Corinthians to have, it's a good corrective. It's a great encouragement. Because look, let's be clear about this. Here at Bathurst Prezies, we are very keen to be a big church. We make no bones about that. We are all for Jesus. We would love for us to grow into a church of at least 45,563 people. The parking will be hard on a Sunday, but that is the current population of Bathurst. And we want, we desire every man, woman, boy and girl in our community to be following Jesus. Jesus himself demands nothing less. But if that's our desire... It is not how we measure our success. Because in the end, being a big church is not what God requires of us. What God requires is gospel faithfulness. And it will be up to God to give the grace if he chooses. And so in that sense, I half wonder if to our shame, there are in fact brothers and sisters in Christ from small, smuggling, struggling churches in little one-horse towns who God may well consider to be way more successful than we are. A while back, I was at a church function at a very small church way out west from here. We were sitting around trestle tables in a very humble little old timber hall. And I was next to an elderly man who was very softly spoken and was certainly not the centre of attention at the table. But as we chatted, he told me about the Sunday school at which he had been teaching for the last 46 years. He shared about his fear that perhaps, maybe, was anything ever being achieved? 
He would teach these little ones about Jesus and then they would grow up and leave town and he'd never see them again and he'd never hear from them again. You don't know if they're pressing on with Jesus at all. And he said there'd been times when he'd just been tempted to stop, give up. But he hadn't. And for 46 years, he'd just been plugging away. And as I drove home that night, I actually wondered if I'd been talking to one of the great ones of the kingdom. Just in his humble, steadfast faithfulness. Because it's real easy to keep going when you're seeing results. But when you're not, it's real hard. Maybe some of you know that. Maybe in your own life, being a Christian has not brought you the things that you had hoped for. Maybe there are times you've gone out on a limb and talked to friends or family or people at school or at work and talk to them about Jesus, but you never seem to get anywhere. Maybe following Jesus has left you lonelier, poorer, busier, and more tired than you would otherwise have been. The Apostle Paul would say, it's okay. Because as far as God's concerned, the thing that matters most is not how many friends or money or free time we have. What matters is gospel faithfulness. What matters is to just keep rowing in the right direction, whatever's falling on you. And one day we will know that in full. Because on that last day, Jesus will not, he will not greet us in the new creation with the words, well done, clever and gifted brother. He will not greet us with the words, well done, eloquent and overachieving sister. On the last day, Jesus wants to put his arm around you and greet you with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That would be lovely to hear. I'll pray. Father, thank you so much for this chapter. Thank you for reminding us of what things matter and what things don't. Father, we've rejoiced in song about